Good morning. All right. My name is um, Chris Miller. Um, my wife, Carice, and I have been members here for con- coming up on three years. Um, and Fudd and Jack asked me to preach on the spiritual discipline of uh, Bible reading. So if you would, um, open up in your Bibles. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, verses 14 through 18. It's the last five verses of Second Peter. Um, but before we actually kind of dive into that, I just kind of want to focus in on the word discipline. It's a word that doesn't necessarily sound sweet to our ears and good. I mean, when I think discipline, I think hard work. I think lots of time. I think um, lots of energy spent. I don't always think, you know, oh, this was the fun times of my life when I was um, disciplining myself with this, but um, you know, remedy believes that these spiritual disciplines are taught in the scripture, and that they're taught as things that they might not always be fun, but they're necessary. And the the cost is great, but the reward is so much greater with these disciplines in our lives. So they're they're for our everyday walk. And kind of the theme verse holding uh, this series together is coming to us from First Corinthians nine. Let me just read this. This is Paul. Writing verse 27, he wrote, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the idea there, um, he just talked about um, how different athletes always are um, exercising self-control so that they can compete in their various sports. And so it's this idea, you know, think of the the Olympics or, um, you know, think to someone maybe that you know, like a friend, like I have a, I teach high school and I have a high school, couple high school students who are gymnasts, and oftentimes they can't make the social, um, the different social events of the school or whatnot because they're busy at work in the gym every single day, consistently, almost seven days a week. It's really only six days a week, but that's a lot. And uh, even missing school at times because uh, there's people going, there's scouts coming to their practice that day or whatever. Um, so it's discipline. You think of the discipline that it takes for those athletes to be good at what they do. Um, this is, Paul is using the same terminology, this, this analogy for us uh, as we're putting these various disciplines in our own Christian walk, striving after Christ to follow him and to be more like him. And so um, right before we um, actually read Second Peter, I uh, just want to point out today we're going to look at asking, um, we're going to look at, we're going to ask the question, what, um, why do I need to read the Bible. And we're going we're gonna to look at five different answers that are given to us from Second Peter. And so let's go ahead and read, um, starting at verse 14. And just as a reminder, this is God's Word. Um, and so just show it reverence. And uh, with, God, with it being God's Word, it's also God's authority, and so we have to obey it. Um, so it says this in Second Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So let's pray and ask that God would just reveal his word to us today. God, we are needy. We are weak. And we know that when you work through weakness and you work through need, the maximum amount of glory is brought to your name because there we can't point to ourselves and say we've accomplished this. So I pray that your presence would just be here with us, that you would open our eyes to behold the, the treasures in your word and that these things would change our lives and mold us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things so that you might be glorified and that we would receive joy in your name. Amen. So, start off with a question. What things would you say to a loved one? So think about a relationship in your life that is, you know, you would say, I, I love that person. So maybe your best friend or a parent or a sibling or, you know, a cousin or a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Think of that relationship. What would you say to that person if you knew it was the last words you would ever speak before you die? You know, I think of, you know, what would I say? I, I think it would be probably, I try to say the most important thing that I've found in life to that person, the most important wisdom and advice that I could possibly come up with at that time. Um, um, there's a couple, couple examples of this within Christian history of a couple Christians who, their famous last words. Thomas Aquinas was a, a theologian in the Middle Ages, and he wrote thousands of pages. I mean, it's, it's too much to read. He wrote so much on just different doctrines, systematic theologies, um, commentaries on the Bible. This theologian, his last words were, all is straw. That sounds profound, right? All is straw. Sounds kind of like we just stepped into Ecclesiastes all over again. Um, but anyways, the, the context here is he had just seen a vision of the glory of Christ. And after seeing Christ, just a, a glimpse of him, he looked back on all he wrote about Jesus and he said, all is straw compared to the real thing. That's the idea there. That's powerful last words. Or how about John Wesley? Uh, he was a preacher in the 18th century revival, the Great Awakening. Um, let me give you a quick biography of him. He co-founded the Methodist denomination. He delivered 42,000 sermons. He traveled 8,000 miles per year on horseback, totaling a quarter mi- million miles in his life. He shepherded 294 Methodist preachers, 71,668 Methodists in England, and another 43,265 Methodists in America, all according to the absolute, sovereign, predestined plan of God. John Wesley, what was his last words? Those must be some good last words. And so he's in his house, his family's gathered around, they know the time of death is near, and he's lost his you know, he's lost his ability to speak, and so he's struggling to get out this last phrase. And finally, you know, by the grace of God, he's able to say this phrase, and he says it not once, but twice. He says this, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. A declaration of the ultimate truth that in the gospel, we receive God, and God receives us. The best of all, God is with us. That's the message of Christmas summarized in one sentence. And so these are powerful words. The reason I mentioned this whole idea of what would you say in your last words is because in Second Peter, these are the last recorded words that we have from Peter the Apostle. And he even acknowledges within the same letter 
that his time of death is near. It says this in 2 Peter 1, 13-14. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And so here we have the advice, the wisdom, the commands of a man who knows his death is imminent. His death is near. And so it's tremendously important that we pay attention. And in this passage, we find that he emphasizes um, us being prepared for the second coming. But one of the strongest ways of being prepared is by making sure that we are reading the Bible and properly understanding the message of God. And so that's where we're going today. And um, before we get to the first answer to the question, why do we need to read the Bible? I just want to just reemphasize, remember back to the doctrine series, um, the first sermon, um, Pastor Jack Blankenship preached on the doctrine of the word, and he kind of gave us just this very simple summary of what we believe about the word of God, that the Bible is the very words of God. The Bible is the very words of God. And so this gives us really all the incentive that we should ever need to read the Bible. The Bible is the very, this is the God who created all things out of nothing. His words. We can always go to his words right now, right here. And so that gives us enough incentive. But on top of that, um, as we look into his word, he gives us even more reasons why we should read his word. And so we're going to look at that in Second Peter. So the first answer the first point, the first answer to the question, why do we need um, to read the Bible, is this. Because reading the Bible is intimately tied to our being rightfully prepared for the second coming of Christ the King. We need to read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to our being rightfully prepared for the second coming of Christ. This comes to us from verse 14. It says, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter here is giving us not a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, it would be good if everybody was diligent. He's actually, he's giving it, this is a, this is an imperative command. It's something that's, it's necessary. We have to do this. He's, he's not saying, please be diligent. He's saying, you must be diligent. You must do your best to be found by God without spot or blemish, and at peace. And so, well, how do we get that this is about the second coming? Because so far I haven't seen the second coming even mentioned. Um, Take a look at the little phrase, these. It's just one word, these. Ask the question, well, what are these? What's this referring to, these things? And anytime you come to something undefined in the Bible like that, it's, it's good to look either a few verses forward or a few verses backward, do both. And try to figure out, well, what's, what's these? Uh, and we look forward and Peter continues to use the terminology, these matters, these things, and so it doesn't help us. But if you look backward, all of chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 13, are about the second coming of Christ and the different things that are going to happen during that time. And so I'll just read just one verse from it. This is from verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so here we see just a little bit of what these things are. It's the various things that are going to happen at the coming of Christ. But then we ask, well, Scripture is not mentioned here. The spiritual discipline of Bible reading is not mentioned here. And so where are we getting that? Um, 
there's two, two things that I would just want to point us to. First, a little bit earlier in 2 Peter 3, verse 2, it says this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostle. And so one reason why Peter, it, our, our reading of the Bible is intimately tied to being prepared for the second coming of Christ is because if we don't read the Bible, we don't even know about the second coming of Christ. We don't know what's going to happen during those times. It's only in the Word of God that we actually find these prophecies and what's going to happen and even how you're going to be prepared for that time. And so there's one kind of reason that Peter throws in there. Another one um, comes to us from Paul. Peter mentions Paul a little bit later and mentions that Paul actually talks about these things as well, these matters, which is talking about the, the, the second coming of Christ. And so look at Ephesians. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Ephesians 5, um, verse 27 Paul's talking about marriage and he's comparing it to Jesus and his church. So the husband and the bride are compared to Jesus and his church. And here Paul says in verse 27 that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we see some of the same terminology, without spot, without blemish. Well, how does, how does Jesus do that? Well, verse 26 says this, that Jesus might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so we find out that Jesus uh, washes his bride with his word to prepare her for his second coming. And so this is just reemphasizing, we need to read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to us being rightfully prepared for our king when he returns. Second thing, Second answer to the question, why do we need to read the Bible? This comes to us from verse, verses 15 and 16. We need to read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to facing destruction or receiving salvation. So the salvation end of that quote we're gonna, is verse 15. The destruction is coming from verse 16. So let's start with the salvation side. Uh, verse 15 says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And so what does it mean here to count the patience of the Lord as salvation? Um, well, it's, it, look back at, again, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Going back to the direct context. Uh, it says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so that count salvation or count, pa count the patience of the Lord as salvation, it's referring to the fact that, well, you know why Jesus hasn't come back today? It's not because he's slow. It's not because he's slow to fulfill his promises. It's because he's patiently waiting for those whom he has called to the gospel to come to repentance. He's waiting for that. So count the patience of the Lord. Every day that Jesus comes back, yes, we should long for him to come back now, but at the same time, count, count it as a blessing that he's being patient. He's waiting for different people to come to repentance in his name. Um, so the destruction end of it, tied to intimately, reading the Bible is tied intimately to facing destruction. This comes from verse 16. So it says this, as he, referring to Paul, does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, uh, the second coming of Christ. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
So here we see that there's a, there's a, a twisting and a distorting of the word of God. And people that are twisting and distorting, it says they're, le- they're literally doing it unto their destruction. It's leading them into destruction. And those who are following after them, twisting the word of God, it's leading them to their destruction. Um, and this makes sense. Second um, Timothy 3, where it tells us that uh, the scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. Well, if the scriptures are able to make us wise, if we twist them, then it's able to make us blind. It's, it's able to make us ignorant towards salvation. So that's the idea here. And kind of give you a, just a, a word picture or analogy. Um, I was, Chris and I were in our bedroom, and the baby was sleeping in our bedroom, taking a nap. And we had a friend over, and he was out at the dining room, the living room area, uh, kitchen table. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in this room watching little baby Eliana sleep. And all of a sudden, there's this huge thunderous crash. The foundations of the earth shake. And I'm like, what's going on here? So I open my door. I run out. I go to the, where I thought the noise originated from. I find my friend on his back with a bunch of random pieces of wood under him. And I start doing a head count on my kitchen table chairs, and I realize I only have five instead of six. And so it bumped into me, and I realized, okay, he sat on this chair, and it collapsed. So I asked him, I was like, did you do a backflip off his chair, and did you land it? Why did this chair collapse? What were you doing, jumping up and down? He told me that he just sat on the chair, and it collapsed. And so I thought back to six months before when we had received this as like a, a gift, a present, and we were opening these chairs, and Aaron Killenbeck, who used to be a member at Remedy, he just moved and his family to Virginia. Uh, we were putting this chair together, and we're tightening these things up, and we noticed that the chairs were wobbly. And I was like, oh, okay, that's okay, Aaron. We're not professionals. I mean, this should work. And so a couple months later, I noticed that they get more wobbly. And so now my manhood is just being pricked. I'm like, okay, there's something broken in my house. So I bite a piece of raw meat. I go out to the garage, and I grab some tools, and I take a screwdriver to the chair, and I start screwing in the wood screws to hold the legs more sturdy. And as I'm doing that, I'm slowly hearing, (coughs) and I'm realizing, oh, what's going on here? So I'm going to stop. So I stopped, and what I... I realized is basically I screwed it in too tight. The wood started twisting with the screw. It started cracking. And over time, after more and more people sat on it, eventually it collapsed and led to the chair's destruction. So that's you know, a little bit more humorous of an analogy. But Peter, the destruction he's talking about is not the destruction of a chair that can be replaced or bought, but rather the destruction of a person being cast into the wrath of God, the, the righteous, just wrath of God that he can never be replaced He can never be replenished. He can never be restored. And so it's more of a serious matter that we're talking about when we're talking about twisting scripture as opposed to twisting chairs. Um, So in looking at that, um, just reminding us that why do we read the Bible? Because reading the Bible is intimately tied to facing destruction or receiving salvation. So our third answer also comes to us from the same verses, 15 and 16. It's this. We read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to how we understand the Bible. That sounds profound, right? It doesn't, not too profound. But uh, Charles Spurgeon, in preaching a sermon which was very practically named How to Read the Bible, so you know exactly what he's going to tell you to do, How to Read the Bible. His first point, he says this, um, In order to the true reading of scriptures, there must be an understanding of them. So the basic idea is this. If you want to get to the truth of God's word, you have to understand what you're reading. It's 
pretty simple. I mean, it, it applies to almost everything you read. If you want to get to the truth of what you're reading, you have to understand what you read. So then the question starts to, starts to become, well, how should we read this book? How, how can we study the scriptures and not twist them like some others do to their destruction? What, way, what safeguards can we put in our life that will ensure that when we're doing the, the spiritual discipline of Bible reading, that we're not twisting the message of the Word of God? Um, and this is related to, again, that the Bible is the very words of God. It's related to that. Because we know that all wisdom comes from God. And so going to the Father and asking for wisdom and understanding from His Word is one thing. And that it's a very good thing. But it's not the only thing. There's another element to the Word of God that we haven't covered, that we have to talk about in order to get to that question. How can we, what kind of things can we put in our life to not twist the Scriptures? Um, this other element is that not only is the Bible the, word, the very words of God, but the Bible is also the very words of man at the same time. At the same time it's the words of God, it's also the words of man. And this is also, we can see this in Second Peter 15 through 16. 15, it talks about the wisdom that Paul writes down that was given to him. This is not Paul's wisdom that he's writing his letters. It's God's wisdom given to him. And so we see that the words that Paul's writing are God's words. But if you look at 16, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Some things that are hard to understand. I don't know if you've noticed this in reading the Bible. You'll come across passages that seem just crystal clear. Like, I, yeah, I know. You know, one plus one equals two. I got that. Crystal clear. But then you'll come across passages that looks like super calculus and you don't got that. And you're like, okay, I don't understand this at all. And you'll notice too that, I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed this a little bit in reading that some different styles of writing are easier to understand. Like when someone's telling me a story, writing in narrative form, I'm like, oh yeah, I can, I'm tracking with you. But then when it gets into like some like really compound sentences and lots of commands and different things and it's relating back to the Old Testament, I start to get lost in all of it. Well, this is because the Bible is a library of books. It's really 66. The overall story of God is found in all 66 books and they all play into that story. But ultimately, there's many different authors, there's many different styles, there's even different variations of um, technique in their writing. So like Luke's Greek is harder than um, Peter's Greek, for instance. And so there's different things like that, and so you come into that. And so J.I. Packer kind of helps us to balance this out and to show us this balance between it being the very words of God and the very words of man. J.I. Packer says this, We are to think of the Spirit's inspiring activity, and for that matter, of all his regular operations in and upon human personality as concursive. That's super confusing. Let's keep going. That is as exercised in, through, and by means of the writer's own activity. Still in a cloud. In such a way that their thinking and writing was both free and spontaneous on their part and divinely elicited and controlled on God's part. Okay, what's the bottom line? Packer says this, And what they wrote was not only their work, but God's work. At the same time, it's the very words of God, it's the very words of man. Um, and in doing that, then, you come across this, this tension of God is the giver of wisdom, and this is God's word. And 
the message of the Bible is his message and we can go to God and he can impart wisdom to us and reveal things that we didn't see before. You get that tension with alongside of the human element that the Bible's writ it's the very words of man that there are certain ways that you read a letter that are different than the way you read Proverbs. Like you don't read emails the same way you would read a proverb and things like that. So there's differences within the styles. And so there's a kind of an academic side to it as well. An academic side to getting to the meaning of the scriptures. And so just a quick example, like think of a, a tribe that, you know, in the middle of India that they don't have a Bible in their own language. They do speak their own language. I mean, they have their own language, but, but 80% of them don't read or write in their own language. So let's just say that we, we as Remedy Church, we translate their Bible, we give them a Bible that day, but still 80% of them They can't read and write their own language. So they're looking at this book. They're not getting God's meaning. They're not getting God's word unless someone speaks it to them and explains and tells it to them. Or they learn their own grammar. They learn how to read and write their own language and then they can start to read God's word. And so that's that tension that I'm trying to show um, between it. Francis Chan, um, kind of uh, commenting on that tension, says this. An academic study of Scripture does not ensure a proper interpretation. So just because you're the smartest person in the world doesn't ensure that you're going to properly interpret the Bible. Uh, But while it's true that rigorous study does not guarantee right results, it does not mean that hard work and a logical approach to Scripture is insignificant. Not only is it helpful, it is necessary and it's commanded. And the commanded part, he's quoting 2 Timothy, or he quotes 2 Timothy 2.15, and it says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And it's a command from Paul to say, basically saying, do your best to rightly handle the word of truth. So if there's anything out there that can help us rightly handle the word of truth more than we are already doing, Paul is saying, do your best. Get those things. Learn those things. Go sit under those people, whoever it is. Do your best. Because again, Paul understands that if you twist the scriptures, just like Peter understands, if you twist them, it can lead to destruction. And so with that balance in mind, um, we find that not only is there a spiritual side to receiving wisdom from God and uh, getting the proper message of God's word, but there's also an academic side, which doesn't sound very fun, right? Um, School, yay. Yay. Um, but anyways, this balance is covered pretty well by Miles Coverdale. The reason I chose this guy is he, wrote, he published the first English um, Bible during the Reformation. So the first complete English Bible was published by Coverdale. It was called the Coverdale Bible because that's original. And in 1535, he wrote in the preface, he wrote this and he captures this balance and how we should work at um, understanding the Word of God. He writes this, again, It shall greatly help you to understand Scripture if you mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom? Who's the author? And unto whom? Who's the audience? With what words? Word studies. At what time? Historical studies. Where? Geographical and cultural studies. Um, To what intent? What's the purpose? With what circumstance? What's the reason? Why why did Paul write Corinthians? Um, Considering what goes before. What comes before Corinthians? What goes after Corinthians? And so there's more of that academic side. And now he's going to bring in the other side. Therefore, I say, when you read the scriptures, be wise and circumspect. 
When you come to strange manners of speaking and dark sentences, to such parables and dreams or visions that are hid from your understanding, commit them unto God. And then he also says, and to the gift of the Holy Spirit and those who are better learned than you. So basically, you need to take into account, this is what he's saying, take into account the author, the audience, the purpose, the definition of words, the historical background, the cultural background, the reason for writing, and the, thing, the place of the book in God's one story. But on top of that, go to God, because only he can give you wisdom. Go to members within Remedy that you know that you see God's gift in them for teaching and expounding on the scriptures and go up to them and say, you know what, this, this thing right here it is just driving me nuts. I can't understand it. Can you explain this to me? That's what Coverdale recommends um, for us when we study the English Bible. And so this just reaffirms the point, our third point, that we need to read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to how we understand the Bible. Uh, before we go to the fourth answer to the question, uh, why, why study the Bible? Why do we need to read the Bible? I just want to quickly um, take a um, kind of a rabbit trail, an intentional rabbit trail, and talk briefly about two tools that kind of lean more towards the academic study of Scripture, just to, just to give you a kind of, just to get your feet wet, just to see these tools and how they, they can help us to get at the meaning of God, or at least enhance the meaning to our souls and things like that. And so, two tools. One of them is the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, uh, many times, there are hundreds of allusions and hundreds of quotes directly from the Old Testament. The New Testament authors, really, they, just, they wrote upon the foundation of the Old Testament, which had come before them. And so, many times in passages, you'll find either an allusion or a quote to the Old Testament. And there's a reason why the author puts that there. It's, it's to help you to get to the meaning of God's word. And so just one quick example. This comes to us from Matthew 27, 46. Um, this is Jesus. He's being crucified. And this is one of the phrases that he says from the cross. Um, it says this, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that last phrase, many people have just asked many questions about it. Like, for instance, is Jesus being cut off here from the Trinity? Is Jesus being cut off just as a man? Is Jesus just saying how he feels right now? Is this really happening? What kind of forsaken man is this? And all those questions are good questions, but they're not quite what I think Matthew has in mind. Matthew here, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just saying something that he feels like. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, which starts exactly the same way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so now that we've, you know, we've seen that he's quoting Psalm 22, you start thinking about the psalm, you start reading through that psalm, and you notice some similarities between that psalm and the crucifixion of Christ. One of the similarities is um, in the psalm, the psalmist speaks of having his hands and his feet pierced. That sounds familiar. The psalmist speaks about people coming around and wagging their head at him saying, you know, if you know God, just ask God and he'll, he'll come and save you, right? That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing to Christ. The same terminology, wagging the head. Um, also in the psalm, it talks about that there, there are people dividing his garments and casting lots for him. That's exactly what we see with the Roman soldiers. They're dividing up the, the garments of Jesus and they're casting lots for him. And so imagine this now that this guy who's claiming to be from God, claiming to be the Messiah of God, is being crucified, and he says, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And as a good Jew, because you've memorized the Psalms, Psalm 22 just flashes to the forefront of your mind. And you start seeing literally right in front of you different prophecies being fulfilled right then and there in God's word. On top of that, Psalm 22, it starts with a cry of forsakenment. But over time, by the end of the psalm, it develops into a cry of victory. In the same way that on the cross, Jesus cries out a cry of forsakenment. But in the grave on the third day when he raises, it's ultimately turned into a cry of victory. And so that's just powerful, powerful meaning, just rich. You can just stay there for days and just float in it. Um, Another tool, it's kind of like that one, Um, theme studies. That's what I call it. It's probably got a cooler name. Theme studies. It's similar to the New Testament use of the Old Testament, but this time you're looking at different themes that pop all the way consistently throughout the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And there's many themes, like the theme of covenant and things like that. But I'm going to highlight one, the theme of redemption. Because I think, I mean, oftentimes in worship songs and, and even when we speak about our own salvation, we oftentimes use the terminology, Jesus has redeemed me, or there is redemption in Jesus Christ. And so it's a normal way of talking about salvation. And it's, it's, it's rich. Just the word itself is rich. You know, buying a slave out of slavery and make, you know, setting him free, you know, Christ put forward a payment and set us free. That's rich within itself. But this term redemption goes all the way throughout the Old Testament. And with it, it starts collecting different stories of redemption that we should think about every time we hear the term. And even when we think about our own salvation. So the first time redemption is mentioned in all the Bible, Genesis 48, 16. And this is Jacob, the son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Um, He speaks about the angel who has redeemed me. And he's referring back to that time when he was wrestling with the angel and, um, you know, he wouldn't let go. And so the angel blessed him and he ended up saying, Jacob, no longer is your name Jacob, but it's Israel. And we know the significance of that name. That name, the significance of it is the promises made to Abraham that there's going to be a Messiah that comes and that all these blessings are going to come to the nations through you. That, that promise is now being bestowed on Jacob. He gets the name Israel. And we know later on that's going to develop into the name of the country of God's people, Israel. And so that's the first instance of redemption. The second time it pops up, Exodus 6, 6. Yahweh is telling Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And this is in reference to God bringing Israel out of Egypt through the ten plagues and the Red Sea and um, the fire from the sky, all the amazing things that are associated with that story is now being tied to the word redemption. This is God redeeming Israel. And so Exodus and redemption are tied together. A little bit later on in the Bible, prophet Isaiah, he also looks back on the Old Testament and sees that redemption and Exodus are tied together and uses the same kind of terminology, but this time to speak of another event. In Isaiah's time, Israel and Judah... The, the two kingdoms of Israel were about to be taken out into exile by the countries of Syria and Babylon. And Isaiah is prophesying that one day God is going to bring Judah out of Babylon and redeem Judah and bring them out of exile and restore them to their land. And so in Isaiah 48, um, verses 20 through 21, Isaiah says this, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. 
And so here again, he's prophesying about being redeemed out of Babylon, but the terminology of Exodus is closely associated, that Yahweh's going to provide water from the rock, just like he did with Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. Um, and so after taking those three things into account, and that's just three, I mean, there's tons of times where redemption, um, it comes up also in the book of Ruth, and there's some powerful story behind that. Uh, but after taking those things into account, when we come to the New Testament and we see things like we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we have redemption in Christ Jesus, how much more rich is that word when we start to associate that our salvation is just as good and way better than God giving Jacob a new name, Israel, and giving him the promises that he made to his forefather, Abraham. It's, more, it's, it's greater than God doing all the things that he did in the Exodus story, all the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea where Israel went into the sea, slaves to Egypt, and came out the other end free. That um, God using, in, in the exile, God uh, using and turning the heart of the king, the uh, King Cyrus, to release Judah out of Babylon. The sovereignty of God, the sovereign power over all the kings of the nations. All those stories built up into that one word. We have redemption in Christ Jesus. And all those things just point forward to Christ. Because Christ is so much greater than those things. So the next time we speak about our salvation in terms of redemption, we have those things to give us fuel to worship our God. That's the idea behind theme studies. And so there's just two quick, more the academic side of tools um, where you're not just, you know, reading verse by verse, but you're actually, you know, you're studying, you're, you're spending time in the text. Um, and so that just reaffirms the third thing, that we read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to how we understand the Bible. So let's move on to the fourth. The fourth answer to the question, why do we read the Bible? And it's this. We read the Bible because reading the Bible is intimately tied to the stability of our own faith. This comes from verse 17. Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Um, that term, take care, or that term to lose, sorry. To lose in, in the Greek, it's in the subjunctive mood, which just is uh, a fancy way of saying that um, it, it's, it's indicating contingency. It's hypothetical. It's something, if you do this and you do this, then this will happen. If you do not do this and do this, then this will not happen. That's the idea here. And so here we have Peter saying, um, we have him saying, uh, knowing this before and take care, which actually you can also, it's the idea of keeping watch at the wall, keeping guard over the village at the wall. You know, you're watching over the wall and you're, you're making sure no enemies sneak in. And he's saying, keep watch. Take care that you're not carried away by the errors of the lawless. Um, because if, you do, if, you, if you're not, if you're not keeping watch, if you are carried away, then um, we lose the stability of our own faith. And so the idea here then is, um, again, keeping watch over the wall, not letting the enemies back, but constantly keeping a watch over the message of God's word and not letting it be twisted and not falling into that. And so just kind of a, a picture analogy again. One, one, a couple years ago, I was in Maine, which is pretty much the coldest, pers- the coldest place on the earth, um, next to maybe Antarctica. And I was up in Maine with one of my good friends um, from college, and me, him, and his dog went out ice fishing. 
because that's what you do in Maine in the winter because that's all you have is ice and fish under the ice. And so you go out on this lake, and you can literally drive a truck out on it because it's, it's solid. And so you start digging these holes, and you start planting the traps for the fish that shoots up flags when a fish bites it. It's pretty cool. And um, anyways, on one of these fishing trips, we're coming back to his car, and um, we're getting to this place where there's a bridge. And under this bridge, you can actually see the water. And so that's an indication that, hey, the ice isn't thick there. There's water. You can see it. So don't, don't go over there. The dog, unfortunately, was not made in the image of God. So therefore, he could not see that. And he ran over there and fell through the ice. So me and my friend, we see this dog and we're like, oh no, we've got to go save it. We're not thinking about what we're doing. But instead, we just sprint full speed over to the edge where the dog just fell in. Not smart, by the way. The dog just proved with his own body that that ice can't hold him. So now I'm sprinting over to the same spot. Um, fortunately, the ice held us. We got the dog out. Everybody has a happy story, but it could have been a lot worse. That same idea that the more we twist the scriptures, the thinner the ice gets for our faith because the scriptures act like a pillar that hold up the roof, which is our faith. And so if you remove the pillar, the roof comes down. If you twist the scriptures, the more you twist it, the thinner the ice. And eventually, the ice isn't going to hold you. And so that's the idea that I think Peter here is getting at. And so um, I'm going to quote one of my dogs, my dead old guys. It's the acronym, dead old guys. This guy, is, uh, his name's Irenaeus. He was um, within generations of Paul. So maybe about 100 years after Paul dies, Irenaeus is on the scene. And he's a church father, and he says this, We have known the method of our salvation by no other means than those by whom the gospel came to us, which the gospel they truly preached. So first, everyone in here that has come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because you heard the gospel from somewhere or someone, and you believed in it, and you were saved. You have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. So he's saying, yes, our salvation, our conversion experience, we heard the gospel, we were saved. But then he goes on to say, but afterward, after conversion, by the will of God, they delivered to us in the scriptures to be the future, the foundation, and the pillar of our faith. And so we're converted by the gospel, which the gospel is in the word of God. But as we walk in this Christian life, Irenaeus saw the Bible as kind of just this pillar, this foundation for which we make all of our decisions. It's the stability. It's the thing that continues to grow our faith. And so, again, the fourth answer to the question, why do we need to read the scriptures? Because reading the Bible is intimately tied to our own stability of our own faith. Um, Fifth and final answer. This comes to us from verse 18. Why do we need to read the Bible? Because reading the Bible is intimately tied to our own growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So again, Reading the Bible is intimately tied to our own growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Uh, verse 18 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Je- and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, notice here that the first word is but. Anytime you see that in the Bible, it's probably contrasting it or comparing it to what came before. And so you look at verse 17, and you see this picture of, if you're not keeping watch and you're led away by the error, you're going to lose your stability. So instead of that scenario... Do this scenario. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the idea there. And so, one of the questions I had when I was looking at this was like, did Peter just command me to grow in grace? 
Like, what does that mean? Does that mean I, like, do things and then I get God's grace? Like, isn't grace the unmerited favor of God? Um, Calvin was really helpful in his commentary on Second Peter. He wrote um, this about this verse. Peter also exhorts us to make progress, for it is the only way of persevering, to make continual advances, and not to stand still in the middle of our journey, as though he said that they only would be safe who labored to make progress daily. And so the Christian walk, Calvin is saying, that growing in grace is the, the, the way that we know that we, are, um, that we are firm and we are founded in Christ is when we see that we are continually continuing to make progress in Christ, sanctification. Now, it's not the idea of every day you get better. It's not what we're talking about. But the overall trajectory of your life is it's going up. You're becoming more and more like Christ over time. Um, and so the idea then here is that Peter's not telling us that we earn the grace of God, but rather Peter's pointing out a couple of mysteries that I think we would all affirm that oftentimes God uses his word as a vehicle to bring grace, to communicate grace to people. I mean, this is why in the Protestant denomination, uh, most Protestants, they, they put the, the, the sermon at the center it's the centerpiece of the Sunday service. It's not because we think, oh, we want to hear from the preacher. You guys, you know, I'm most important, so you guys need to listen to me. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that oftentimes, more times than not, God has ordained to move people, to give people grace through the hearing of his word. And so apply that to our own lives, the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. Oftentimes, God ordains to bring us grace through his scriptures, even when we're studying them and we're reading them in our own times. Um, so we're not talking about earning grace, but rather God giving grace through his scriptures, his word. So again, just to repeat it, the fifth and final answer to the question, why do we need to read the Bible? Because the Bible is intimately tied to our own growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So after looking at kind of these five answers to that question, I mean, really, we could have stopped at the Bible is the very words of God. That really is enough for why we should want to read the Bible. Um, but we got those other things, too. And there's many more things. After that, I just I want to conclude just kind of talking again about the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. Explain that a little bit and issue kind of two challenges for us to follow for this coming year. Um, when I talk about Bible reading, I'm not just simply meaning, okay, Genesis 1 verse by verse by verse by verse by verse, all the way to Revelation. That's part of it. That's one element of the spiritual discipline of reading the Bible, reading the whole story of God and getting the, the whole story right in front of you. But another aspect of it is not just reading quickly through uh, different passages, but parking at one, parking at one thought and just saying, what is this passage communicating? Just really digging deep. You know, what does this word mean? You know, what's the context of this? What's the application I can get from this? Why did Paul write this, all these things? And just parking and just soaking in that scripture for days and studying it. And so that's more of that, kind of like we were saying, that more of the academic side. And so I've got a challenge that correlates to each one of those. The first one, with just the Bible reading, just going through verse by verse, um, I want to challenge Remedy, including myself, that if you're not already doing this, that on the New Year's Day that you would start doing a year, um, year re Bible reading plan, that you would go verse by verse through the scriptures. Um, you can find one online. You just Google year uh, Bible reading plan. Or there are four 
if you go around this corner to that table with the um, laptop on the right-hand side of that table, there's four different kinds of Bible reading plans. And if you go through them, it just gives you a certain amount of Scripture each day to read. And if you do that a whole year, the whole Scripture is accomplished. So my challenge is to you know, go grab one of those and commit to reading the whole, script, the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in one year. Second challenge, um, and this is more dealing with the studying aspect, the soaking aspect, the sitting for time in different passages. Um, one of uh, either Fudd or Jack on the city sometime this week, they're going to post an article that just kind of gives you quick synopsis of different tools that you can use that will help you to not twist the scriptures, but rather enrich the meaning or get out the meaning from the scriptures. Um, kind of like what we were just talking about, the two tools I gave example with. There'd be a couple tools, and with them, there'd be like reference books and different things that you can look at borrowing, or maybe you'll find it on Amazon used for a dollar or something, you know, some different things. And so my challenge is to read that article, which will give, you know, eight or nine things. And don't immediately say, okay, I'm going to do all these things at the same time, but begin during different weeks when you decide to soak in the scriptures. Take one or two of those things and start to integrate it into how you study and how you soak in the scriptures, how you meditate upon them. Um, so those are the two challenges. Grab a reading plan, read through the Bible in a year, um, read the article on the different tools and start integrating those tools because we don't want to be a people that twists the scriptures. Um, so let me just conclude with a quote from another dead old guy, Puritan from the 1670s, 1700s. Um, Thomas Brooks, he said this in regarding to reading scripture. Remember, it is not hasty reading but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads the most, but he who meditates the most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. So let me just end in prayer. Father, that you would just build a hunger in our hearts for your word. And in the times when it's not fun, when we, we find ourselves busy, uh, we find ourselves in a part of the Bible that we really don't have any interest in, and I just pray that you would give us self-control in those times that even though it's not fun, that we would choose to read your word, to study your word, because your word points us to Jesus. And there is no better thing on earth or in heaven than Jesus. I pray that you would just fill us up this year as we um, strive to read through your word in a year and strive to start integrating different tools that can help us to understand your word. I pray that all that would be fueled for a desire to see you glorified among the nations and, and also fueled by a desire for us to have joy and all of our joy in you alone. God, just fill us with hunger for your word. Only you can do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.